This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear fathers, we come before you today. We pray that you may help us to bridge the many millennia as we go back into Isaiah to hear your word, as we meet you in your word. And we pray that truly uh, we'll be strengthened by your instructions, that we'll be warned by what we read here today. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I became a Christian in the last year of my university, relatively late in life. And I was really happy to become a Christian. Uh, at that time I was really at peace with it. I thought it was the, you know, it was the most sensible decision I'd ever made in my whole life. Filled with uh, very unsensible ones. But the very next year, I started work. And very early on in my working life, I experienced these very strange stomach pains. And they were really very painful and left me just uh, you know, curled up in bed. I, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't go to work. And I remember uh, having a Christian friend of mine coming over. And I used to ask him, I said, you know, why is God allowing this to happen to me? And uh, about a year after I'd become a Christian, I really felt very shaken in my faith. I really struggled as a Christian whether I'd made the right decision. I think the question that, uh, that faces every one of us as Christians is, what will make us question our faith in Jesus Christ? Right? What will test our faith in Jesus Christ? Because I believe that my experience is not a unique one. I think that every one of us as Christians at some point in time will find a time of testing of our faith. It may be uh, pressure from friends, pressure from loved ones, uh, a death of a close friend, failing exams, unemployment, a loss of a job, some injustice in life. But today as we come to Isaiah chapter 8 and 9, it actually is God's word to us to prepare us for those times, to get ready for those times where I believe that our faith will be tested. So as we come to Isaiah chapter 8 and 9, it really is God's word to a people who are facing testing of their faith. Now today we're going to look at uh, the background of Isaiah chapter 8 and 9 because it's going to be a bit longer than normal, so you have to bear with me and follow what I'm saying because we need to get to the historical background to help us to understand what is happening in chapter 8 and 9. And because in our Bible studies we, we really didn't do chapter 7, we need to do a bit more background to it. So last week as we looked at Isaiah chapter 6, we saw that Isaiah had uh, seen a vision from God at the death of King Uzziah. Can you see right at the very top? Right, It's about 740 BC. Remember the prophet Isaiah had a vision from God and God was sitting on the throne high and exalted and it was about 740 BC. But today as we come to chapter 8, Uzziah has, has since long gone and there's a new king, the king Ahaz. Now, King Ahaz ruled in a very different time from King Uzziah. Whereas King Uzziah ruled for 52 years in a time of uh, p- relative peace and prosperity, King Ahaz ruled in difficult times, turbulent times, uh, times of living dangerously. So in chapter 7, verse 1 to 2, which I'll flash up here, it says, When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remelah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. 
but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So this is the context of Isaiah chapter 8 and 9. Right? It is a context and a background, a time of which uh, two of the major powers, I suppose, north of Judah, had allied themselves against Judah. So if you could see this map, you see there the kingdom of Aram, Damascus, and the kingdom of Israel, right, which used to be part of Israel, decided to come together in alliance to bring their forces to bear against Judah. And here we see in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 7 that the mood of the people was one of panic and of fear and of terror, of great anguish. It was as if, as the image is given here, that they were like uh, a forest which was shaken by a great wind, right? They, they were shaking in their boots, so to speak. So if you Google Isaiah chapter 7, you actually see that someone has, has uh, put a picture of the scream together with uh, you know, Isaiah chapter 7, which is really a picture of, you know, of terror and panic and anguish. And that's how the people felt. But as we come to the rest of Isaiah chapter 7, what happens is that God comes into the picture. So you need to turn to me to chapter 7, verse 3, because I'm going to read a little bit of it. And this is important for us to understand Isaiah chapter 8. So if you don't follow with me in Isaiah chapter 7, it'll be, you'll be missing out a lot on what's happening in cha- uh, chapter 8 of Isaiah. Okay? So I'm going to read from verse 3. So it said, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out you and your son Shur Jashub to meet Ahaz, the king, right? King Ahaz, at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the laundress field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, and of the son of Remali. Aram, Ephraim, and Remali's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet this is what the Lord, the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remela's son. If you do not stand your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord asked Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or on the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? So into this uh, situation... This historical background of fear and panic and terror, God comes in and says, Don't worry, keep calm, I've got it all under control, right? I will protect you. And because he knows that Ahaz and the people are full of terror, he says, Look, to reassure you, to, to, you know, to give you, strengthen your faith, so to speak, ask for me any sign. Right? Ask me anything from the highest heavens to the bottom of the ocean. But to the great surprise, to our great surprise, Ahaz says, 
I will not ask for a sign. Now that's a, a shocker, right? If you really want to think about it. It's a bit like hey, if I say to you, I'm going to give you a million dollars. Can you say, oh no, you know, I don't think so. I don't think you even got a million dollars for me to give you. Then I say, okay, look, 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 in order to reassure you, I'm going to give you, I'm going to take my wallet, and I'm going to give, out, give you, you know, whatever's in here, my credit card or my bank uh, card, and you can use it whatever you like. And as I'm taking out my wallet, you say to me, no, 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 I'm good, I'm good, right? I don't need your wallet and I don't need your million dollars. And that's exactly what Ahaz was doing to God, right? Because God was saying, look, don't be scared, keep calm, don't be afraid, stand firm in faith. I'm going to give you a sign. Ahaz says, my, my faith in you is so low that I don't really even want to see a sign. Now, if you think about it, this is actually what's happening, right? So the next slide is that the fear, right, the fear of Aram and Israel is so great, so much greater than their faith in God and fear of God, and that their view of human power is so great and the view of God is so low that Ahaz doesn't even bother to ask God for a sign. And therefore God then says in the rest of chapter 7, well, if, if that is your attitude, right? Uh, if, if you don't want my million dollars, fine, don't take my million dollars, right? And that's what God says. He basically says, well, if you don't want my protection, if you don't want me to watch over you, if you think that you, you fear human power more than you fear me, then so be it, right? Your fate will be in your hands and you will be destroyed. So that's the context of uh, chapter 8 that we're coming to right now. Now, as we come to verse 11, you'll notice that the audience has changed, right? Because in the whole of chapter 7, God is speaking to Ahaz, King Ahaz, and the people of Judah. But in verse 11, now God speaks to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and not just the prophet Isaiah, but the, the disciples and the faithful remnant together with Isaiah. So in verse 11, it says, This is what the Lord says to me with a strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Now, it's almost as if God, right? You know, you know sometimes when you really want to, to get your message across, uh, like uh, let's say you have little children, right? You, you put your, your hands on both their shoulders, you get down to their level and says, listen to me, don't cross the road without me, right? And like that's what God is doing. He's putting his strong hand on Isaiah and he's saying to him, don't follow the way of the people. Right? Don't be like the people. And that means that the attitude of King Ahaz is not just the attitude of King Ahaz by himself, but this is the, he is like the manifestation of the people themselves. His fear is their fear. Uh, King Ahaz's lack of faith in God is the, a reflection of the people's lack of faith in God. So God says, don't be like these people, don't be like Ahaz, in two particular ways. And the first way comes in verse 12. It says, do not call conspiracy everything these people call a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. 
He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place. But, I mean, in, in the other translation, he's like a sanctuary, right? For both Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken, they will be snared and captured. Now as we come to uh, verse 12, it's quite a strange verse, right? What does it mean, do not call a conspiracy, everything that they call a conspiracy? Uh, I like the Eugene Peterson translation of the Bible where it says, these people, don't be like them, they are always afraid about what people are plotting against them. Because that's what a conspiracy is, right? You know, if you think of conspiracy, it's like, you know, someone is plotting something against you. And that's the problem of the people in those days. That was what Isaiah was being warned against. Don't be like these people because their focus is always about human schemes, human plots, and human conspiracy. They're always fearful about and obsess about human power against them. <clears throat> but instead, they should turn their eyes and fear God first and foremost. Right? So if you think of the equation again, instead of fearing the schemes of Aram and Israel, fear the Lord Almighty. Because if you remember back in Isaiah chapter 6, which we learned last week, Remember the great king Uzziah died and, and, and at that vision, Isaiah saw God. And what was God like? He was on a throne high and mighty. God is the king above all kings. God is the king who is high and mighty. He is the one that they are to fear. And that's why if you go back to chapter 7, uh, if you look up here on the slide, right? remember God spoke through Isaiah to King Ahaz and he said, look, why do you fear Aram? Why do you fear Damascus? Why do you fear Israel? Right? At the end of the day, the head of Aram is Damascus and, and who is sitting in Damascus? It is only resin, only a human being. Why do you fear these human beings beside this great and mighty God? Because if you fear God, then He will be your sanctuary. He will be your safe place. Right? He will be your holy place. But if you fear man, then you will be destroyed. There will be doom and devastation. You will stumble and fall. You will be caught in a snare. You will be destroyed. And that's why, in the middle of chapter 7, it says... If you do not stand in your fa- firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Right? It's almost as if the only safe place is to stand in, in, like, in this fear of safety in the, in the sanctuary of God, where you stand firm in your, in your fear of God, in your faith in God. But if you step outside of that sphere of the fear of God, then you will only find destruction and doom and despair. You'll be caught in a snare, you'll you, you fall down over the stone. Now I think this is a very important message for us today. Right? Because as we live this side of the cross, we are 
tempted, just like the people of Isaiah's time, just like Isaiah and the disciples, to, to fear man, to fear human schemes, more than to fear God. So if Isaiah 6 last week was to keep a clear reality of who God is, then this week's picture really is to fear God because He is that reality of an almighty God and to see the reality that, that tiny human beings, even though they strike such great fear in us today, in eternity, they cannot hurt us. Right? There is only true sanctuary found in God Himself. So as we read in our responsive reading, which we read earlier in Matthew chapter 10, you notice that there are many similarities here in Jesus' warning to His disciples as the warning that Isaiah was given. Right? So, if you see the next slide, which is uh, the more relevant one, it says, Do not fear man. Right? Do not fear man. Because man can only kill the body, but not the soul. Be afraid of the one who can kill both the soul and the body. And it talks about how you need to acknowledge God before people, because if not, God will disown you, or Jesus will disown you before God the Father at the last day. So as we listen to the word of Isaiah, and as we listen to the word of, of uh, Matthew, it's almost as if God is holding us by the shoulders, right? He's talking to us seriously. The strong hand is upon us and says, do not fear what the world fears. Do not fear people. Do not fear man, but fear God. Do not step outside the sphere of faith in God. Because there are many, many things that can cause us to lose our faith in God. And there are many, many times where we will be tempted to fear man more than we fear God. So last week we had a visitor, and uh, he was a pastor that I went out for lunch with. He, he, he was from Sydney, and uh, I'd never met him before. He came to, to, to our service, and uh, we, we met for lunch, and I was asking him how his ministry was in Sydney, in Australia. And uh, he was telling me that it was, it, was, it was a bit tough because he meets in a public school in Australia and Sydney. So in Australia, apparently, you, your churches are allowed to uh, rent the, the public school building to meet for their church services. And he told me that some churches in Sydney, Australia, had been forced to stop meeting in the church. And the reason was because anonymous people in the public had been complaining about this church or that church and what it was preaching about sexuality and gender from the pulpit. Right? So they were, they were just saying things that the Bible was saying, and then people were complaining to the school, and the school didn't want trouble. And so the school would then ask the, the church to not meet there on a Sunday. So the question I asked him uh, was, how, was there a safe way to, 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 to preach what the Bible said about sexuality and gender now that he was meeting in this public school. And his answer to me was very surprising. He said, no. He said, there is no safe way to preach about sexuality and gender. He said, even if he were to just say something like, the Bible supports the traditional view of marriage between a man and a woman, 
as long as someone was offended, they could still complain to the school and his church would still possibly be asked to leave uh, that building. And uh, he was also tell- telling me about how there were Christian parents, um, some Christian parents that he knew who were considering pulling their kids out of government schools and putting them in the Christian schools because in some of the government schools, they had uh, like this wear purple day. So on a day, on this particular day, they were meant to wear purple to show their support for the, you know, the, the LGBTQ movement. And, uh, and I said, well, what happens if you're a Christian and you decide not to wear purple on that day? And he said, well, you know, school can be a very rough place. Uh, and I, I remember a few uh, uh, years ago, someone, uh, another friend of mine was working in a major Australian bank, told me that his bank uh, was very publicly supportive of uh, the LGBTQ movement. And uh, you were also supposed to, on this particular day, do various things and wear particular clothes. And I said, well, what happens if you don't? And he said, well, you may not be promoted or it will affect your job. So I think, uh, obviously, these are not real situations for us today, but it may be real situations for us in the future. But the, the question really is, as we apply what we read in Isaiah's time to our time, it's still very relevant. Because in Isaiah's time, right, they, there was a great fear of man's schemes, particularly with Aram and with Israel threatening to, to conquer the nation. And the question was, do you, do you fear God more or do you fear the power of man's schemes in terms of the threat to your nation? But I think to us today, I mean, we're not worried about Malaysia and Thailand uh, invading us at the moment, right? But, but there's a very real relevancy in what we read here and in terms of what we read in Matthew where do you fear man's schemes and how it might affect you in terms of your job or your promotion? Or will you fear God more in that circumstance? Uh, you know, there may be times where you may fear ridicule and, and being shamed or bullied at school. Will you fear God more than what people may say to you because you're a Christian? Right? I, I mean... Uh, some other Christians have told me that, especially in the West, if you go to a dinner party and you tell people that you're Christian, uh, people don't look at you and say, oh, that's very nice for you. They will actually look at you and think that you are a bigoted uh, person. So, will you fear them more than you fear God? Because the passage here says very clearly, right, do not fear what they fear. Because the world fears man's schemes. It fears man's disapproval, man's ridicule. But we fear God and we realize that it's only within the sphere of standing in faith in Jesus Christ that we will find sanctuary. God is very clear. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Now the passage then goes on in verse 16 in Isaiah And uh, <clears throat> Isaiah is given another way where he's not supposed to f- follow the way of these people. He says, Bind up this testimony of warning, seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I. 
and the children the Lord has given me. We are the signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Now here in this passage, Isaiah is told, but it's not just Isaiah. I want you to pay careful attention, right? It says, Isaiah together with his disciples. Isaiah together in verse 18, together with the children of of the Lord, right? So it's not just Isaiah who is in view here, but, but the faithful remnant, those who believe in God, who fear God, whose God's children they are. And they are told to bind up and seal up, it says here, the testimony of God. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, we kind of like take the Bible and we took, put lots of rubber band in it and we never look at it again. If you look carefully at what it says here, it says, bind it up among the people among my disciples. It means the word is like bound up within us. Not individually, but within the whole congregation. We, we are securing the word. We are guaranteeing the word. We are guarding the word. And the reason why Isaiah and disciples are told to do that is because among the people, the way of the people, they have lost God's word. The word of God is lost. They, they, they consult mediums. They consult spiritists. They, they find some other means of instruction and wisdom apart from God's word. But God says, if you are the one who will wait for the Lord, if you are the one who trusts in God, then how, how is that seen? Well, one of the ways it's seen is you hold on to the word, you seal up the word, and you bind up the word among us. If you do so, it says, then in verse 20, if you have the word, then you will have the light of dawn. Now, this is, uh, as, as we were saying every week, right, the book of Isaiah is full of imagery, right? So what is the light of dawn? So if you think of the light of dawn, it's like a new day, right? So if you, I mean, some of you never wake up early enough for the light of dawn, but you know, for those of you school-going kids, you know, the light of dawn is something you see every morning. So anyway, you see the light of dawn, it's like, it's, like a, it's like a brand new day, right? It's like a new beginning. It's very positive. But that's only if you have the word. If you, if you hold on to the word, if you bind up the word, you will have the light of dawn. But the passage says that for those who do not have the light, sorry, if you don't have the word of God, then in the second half, in verse 19 to 22, it's full of imagery of darkness and distress and gloom and utter darkness. Right? So, so instead of light, don't, all you get is black. Right? It's just darkness. Now I think this, this is something that we, we really need to hear today as well. 
Because you know we live in a, in a time where uh, we've lost the word of God. Right? I mean, uh, for general society, it repudiates uh, God's word as a guide for anything because the world in its uh, secular understanding knows better either going through science or its own uh, morality. But we as a people must always come back to God's word in order to make sense of the world, in order to understand God, in order to understand ourselves and understand how we are to live in God's world. So, I spent a lot of time reading the newspaper and as I was preparing this passage, I was thinking to myself, you know, where do I seek my counsel? Where do I get my wisdom from? Do I get it more from the newspaper or do I get it more from God's word? Right, so, in my Bible study, we were saying, you know, where do we get our, our wisdom from? Do we get it from uh, Mr. Google? Right, or do we get it from the Bible? What, what is it that we trust at the end of the day for guiding us through life and understanding our place in life and how uh, we are to live? But it's not just a, a danger in terms of uh, the way the world is influencing our thinking, even among ourselves as Christians. Uh, I was reading this book many years ago called The Revelation of God. See, Amazon got five stars, so it can't be that bad. Right? And it says that even among Christians today, uh, many, many Christians have lost uh, the Word of God. Right? We turn to other sources of revelation from God. So we turn to speaking in tongues, or we turn to prophecies, or we turn to spiritual experiences in order to inform us of the revelation of God. So, I remember counseling someone many years ago who had entered into, a, from according to God's word, a, a sinful and unholy uh, relationship. And when I was talking to this person, I said, you know, the Bible says very clearly that you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be in a relationship with this person. Then this person said to me, said, well, you know, it was a miracle that I met this person and it's a miracle that, that we are together. And this is God's speaking to me that we are meant to be together. Can you, can you see what's happening here? So here is the clear revelation of God and His Word. But instead of listening to God's Word, they are listening to some experience and rationalizing uh, their own behavior. But according to God, will you see the light of dawn in this way? You won't. By ignoring the clear revelation of God in His Word, you, you've, you, you've actually put yourself into darkness. So in the same way for us, if we want God as our sanctuary, if we want to see the light of dawn, then we need to hold on to His Word. Now as we come to the last section, which is uh, chapter 9 onwards, uh, I can't spend very long on it because I spent so long on the background, the context but if you see verse 9, actually verse nine, chapter 9 is an encouragement, a, a vision of the future to encourage Isaiah and his disciples to keep standing firm in faith. Because right? this is like a, a vision of the future, so hold on because this is what's going to happen. The first vision comes in uh, verse 1 to 7, right? And, and this, sorry, in verse 1 to, um, to 2, right? And it says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. 
But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So what um, Isaiah is being given here is a vision of a time where this darkness for the nation of Judah will become a new light. And he begins in um, the land of Naphtali and Zebulun, so way, way up north in what would be the old uh, Israel, right? So, so it begins there, so the people living there were, were living in deep, deep, deep darkness. Now again, history and geography are important because if, if you were living in Israel, the, the parts we always got conquered first would be those closest to the border. Right? This would be the place where you know, all the conquering nations would come back and forth and that's why it was called, if you look very carefully, right, it says that this is called the Gentile place. Right? It's, it's a place where the Gentiles were. It says you will honor the Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. Because there had been so much conquering back and forth that this place was, uh, you know, had a lot of Gentile people living there. And it was a place of great darkness because this is the place which was lost First and foremost, whenever people conquered Israel. But the promise of God is that this darkest place would see the light, a great light. And I think that initially this was fulfilled, if you look in the next slide, because uh, there's actually, when they went out into exile, when they were taken away to exile, in 539 BC, come, uh, the next slide, the bigger one, so I zoomed it up for you. You can see there's a blue, maybe from the back you can't see very well, there's a blue luminescent line, right? So that's actually meant to represent a highway. So there were these ancient highways which, which went down from the north to the south. And just so happens, there was a highway running by the way of the sea along the Jordan, from Damascus and Syria all the way down past Capernaum into Judah. And this would be the way in which the exiles would come back from Babylon into Judah. So the place which was darkest would see a great light because the first of the exiles would come back to Judah. But I think that as we live on this side of the cross, there's a greater fulfillment that Isaiah had in mind. Because in Matthew chapter 4, which is the next slide, right, It says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth, and he went to live in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Okay, this sounds familiar, right? To fulfill what was said to the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light, On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So, if you came for the Isaiah overview that uh, Pastor Andrew Wong did, which was excellent, he had a picture, but I think mine is not as good as his. Right? Uh, Because I just, you know, randomly grabbed stuff off Google. 
but don't trust everything on Google. Anyway, so, uh, so you know, it's, it's like a double, it's like a double fulfillment, right? So, here God has given a promise and it's fulfilled in the short term, in the return from the exile where they're liberated. They're liberated from foreign oppression. But the ultimate fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ because He is the one who liberates he liberates for eternity from the shadow of death. He liberates us from not the bondage of Assyrian conquer, conquering, but the bondage of death and spiritual death and, and judgment itself. But that's not the only uh, prophecy that um, Isaiah has given. Because he gives this marvelous uh, promise of this child. So in verse 6 it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, if the first prophecy was a double, um, du- double fulfillment, then actually, as we look at this last prophecy, there is, there is actually a, uh, no complete fulfillment yet, isn't it? Because unless we look at the person of Jesus, there, there is only one fulfillment. It's not as if that there are many, many people who fit the bill of this particular prophecy. Because... It is speaking of someone who is born of a child, but yet is mighty God. Now, if you look in the whole of human history, there is no one who is born of a child, and yet is mighty God. Unless there is only that person, Jesus Christ. So as we look at the person of Jesus at his birth in Luke chapter 2, right, we see all the elements of Isaiah chapter, uh, you know, seven, uh, chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 here fulfilled, right? Because here is the one who is the Christ, who is the Davidic king. He is the saviour who, who rescues people out of the shadow of death. He is the Lord. So here we see the fulfilment of God's vision and prophecy to Isaiah. But as we look at this passage in Isaiah chapter 6 and 7, we know that the beginning of the kingdom has started. Right? Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, but it hasn't fully been fulfilled yet because we are still living in this fallen world. So I think that as we look at this passage, it is at once a great encouragement because we can see more than Isaiah could. We can see more than Isaiah's disciples could. We see Jesus, we see the light the true light come to the land of Nephthali and Zebulun. We see the, the one who comes born of a Virgin Mary, but at the same time fully God. But we know that there is still one part of the vision which is unfulfilled, which is the fulfillment of the great kingdom that God has promised us, the sanctuary to come, the light of dawn. So as you come to the very end of Isaiah, I began by saying, you know, what are the things that shake our faith? What are the things that test our faith? Well, as we look at this passage, 
As we look at the times of Isaiah, what tested their faith was the world around them. The, the fear of man, the schemes of man, the conspiracies of man. Uh, the loss of God's word among God's people. And as we look at ourselves and look at our times, I think we would say that we are living in similar times. We are living in a time where there is more and more to fear from the way the world is going. You look at the world, in many ways you compare it to what God's vision of the world should be, you say, well, the world is getting from bad to worse. And as Christians, if you are willing to stand up for Christ and not be ashamed of confessing Christ, you will feel uh, the brunt of the world's disapproval. And you may face injustice, you may face persecution, you may face difficulty, but you must fear God more than man. Because on the last day when you see God, as we've seen early on in the book of Isaiah, right, his greatness and His glory and His majesty will make you realize just how small we are as human beings. And as the world moves further and further away from the Word of God, even Christians moving further and further away from the Word of God, we need to realize that the only revelation of God that we can trust is the Bible, is the Word of God. And we need to bind it up and to seal it among ourselves and not lose it. Because only in that way will we truly look forward to the last part of God's vision, right, or God's prophecy, that when Jesus comes again, we will see the light of dawn, of dawn and we will truly find our sanctuary uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that as we come to this uh, difficult passage in Isaiah chapter 8 and 9, that we would be willing to see how deep and profound it truly is, that it speaks of times not too different from our own time, where God, you are putting your strong hand upon us, you are taking us by both shoulders and saying, do not be like this people. Do not fear what the world fears. Do not fear man and his schemes. But rather, we must fear you alone because only you have the ability to destroy our souls, to bring us into eternal judgment. Dear Father, help us to be so filled with the reality of your glory, your majesty and your holiness that we will fear no one else. Even as we... Uh, heard earlier today, even as uh, in China, there may be great fear of uh, the great communist party there and its powers, but yet you are even mightier, dear Father. And dear Father, we pray for ourselves too that we will always seal up and bind up your word within us, that we will secure it within us, that we will never lose it even if people are turning away to other revelations, other wisdom, other counsel. And that we may be even more confident now that Jesus has come because He is the light that you promised in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And He is the one who is born of a human being but yet fully God. So dear Father, help us to look forward to the last part of that prophecy 
that indeed he will come and his rule and his government will be forever and ever and it will be full of righteousness, justice and glory. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.